So this morning, um, as you can see, the subject is peace. And um, it's, it's been a bit of a, a weird journey preparing this, this uh, particular talk because I've, I've been feeling very uneasy the, the, the whole of the way through. It's been a real battle for me. Not that I don't understand what peace is, not that I'm somebody who's never felt peaceful, but sometimes, you know, it, you know there's stuff which is going on, uh, not just recently, but sort of stuff which sort of gets stored up in your life. And uh, you sort of find this place where you're not in that place of settled peace. So I found it quite an interesting journey in just preparing this. And I'm just saying this, this introduction, just so you don't think, oh, here's somebody who's got it sorted. No way. Here's somebody who's journeying this and discovering this. And so join me a little bit on my, on my journey as we go through. So what, what I'm going to do is read a, a section from Ephesians chapter 2, um, uh, 12 verses here. And I'm going to read it off the, uh, off the slide so it doesn't confuse you that in that what is up there is not what I'm saying because my Bible translation is just ever so slightly different. Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promised, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, and through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Yes, as I thought, we're halfway through the wrong part of the talk. Here we go. I'm going to put my phone there just to get it right. So, what is it? What is peace? Turn to the person next to you and say, what is peace? See if they give you an answer. A lot of people are smiling, which means they're getting good answers. <laughs> It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because in, in, in our world, peace is often described as armies putting their weapons away, as, as an end to hostility, as, as people pulling back uh, and, and not fighting anymore. But when, when we come to the Bible, the biblical idea is slightly different because basically it's everything is as it should be. Everything is 
as it should be. Which is far deeper, far more profound, far richer than just an end to hostility. And one of the pictures uh, that the Bible throws up for, for peace, there, there, there are several, and, and we could spend a long time going through them all, is, is one that sort of is almost a, a sort of a, a, for, a forgotten little bit. And uh, in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 25, it talks about how Solomon finishes off uh, the temple. It says, Now three times in a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar which was before the Lord. And it says, And so he finished the house. So he finished the house. And that word finished there is the same root word as peace. So the, the, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. There it says shalam. Okay, so it just uses different vowels, but basically it's peace. So what it's saying here is that when Solomon finished the temple, there was peace. Everything was right. Everything was as it should be. And what Paul does is he picks up on this idea. And Paul's very good at just taking something very little in the Old Testament and then building something on it. So he says this. So in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So in this section on peace that Paul has got, he finishes it with this idea that he's hooked out of the Old Testament about peace being like this very complex structure. And every little bit was in place. Everything was in the right place. Everything had been uh, put right. And the thing is this. When you look at the wall of your life, when you look at the structure of your life, if your life was like a, a wall, perhaps it may be sort of feeling a bit more like this brick wall that we see up there. Not feeling that complete. Not feeling that perfect. You can't really say, well, everything is exactly in place and everything is right. And that quite often can be the situation that we find ourselves in. And our peace is taken away when bricks are sort of taken out of the wall, where stones are missing, where things are all a bit out of alignment. Peace is restored when everything finds itself back in place. And so the question is this, how do we get to peace? How do we get to peace? Well, Paul talks a lot about a covenant, uh, a covenant. And I want to talk to you very, uh, very briefly about a specific covenant in the Old Testament. But what I want to do is tell it through a story. There was a man who um, ended up in jail. He was one of those people who couldn't stop nicking stuff, was always sort of finding himself in trouble. And eventually he got caught for his life of thieving uh, and he got put into prison. But in prison, uh, he, he met some Christians who shared the gospel with him and his life was changed. His life was changed. And he decided that when he got out, he was going to put his life of crime to one side. He wasn't going to go back there. But the pressures that were on him, the pressures of finance, the pressures of the people he knew, the pressures of, of just making ends meet and, and doing stuff with his time, meant that he got back into a life of crime. And uh, he knew that the church was a pretty soft target. So one night he went in and he went straight for the, uh, the offering box that was there. 
and was uh, opening it up and getting out. And as he did so, his light, his flashlight flashed around the room. And I don't know if you've been in Anglican churches, but many have two things up at the front, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. And as his flashlight went across the front, it, it went on those words, do not steal, or thou shalt not steal. And for the first time, he read those words in a different way. Not as a command, but as a promise. Not as a command, but a promise. And God said to him, you shall not steal. He didn't walk out of that church with anything, but knowing how he was going to live his life. And you see, the thing is about the Ten Commandments, quite often we look at them as this legal framework. And being brought up in, in the Western world, we, we're, we're sort of trained, without knowing it, to, to sort of think legally. But this is a covenant. Now, covenant is a bit of a weird word that we don't use very often, but the most common way in which we could understand a covenant would be a marriage, where two people come together and they make promises to each other. It's not about setting down rules and regulations for how this relationship is going to work. It's all about promises. And so when God starts, you know, sort of creates the, the, the covenant between him and the nation of Israel, he does it with the Ten Commandments as we know them. But they're ten promises. They're the ten promises. And God is sort of speaking over his people and saying, you're not going to have any God except me. You're not going to have idols. You're not going to take the Lord's name in vain. You're not going to work until you drop. You're going, you shall have a day off a week. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. And all these things, they were promises that he spoke over them. But the problem was this, is that it became this legalistic way of thinking, this legalistic way of doing things. And, and this is what Paul is sort of talking into. He says, you've, you've, you've got this, wrong idea, this idea all wrong. And he says, there's something different about this covenant. There's something different that was always there. It was always God's intention. God was always trying to bring his people back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve and, and God just walked with each other and were in perfect relationship with each other. He was always wanting that to happen, but it was always getting messed up as people started to make it, uh, this legalistic thing and as people started to do their own thing and forget about the promises and, and, to, and to break the promises as it were. And so Paul comes up with this, this different way. And he says, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. There is a new covenant. There is a new way. Jesus is our peace. And uh, last week in, in, in the kids' bit, if you remember it, we, we sort of acted out Jesus' classic, classic, uh, story about reconciliation, his classic story about reconciliation. And Paul, through this section, in, in talking about peace, is saying that 
through the cross, through what Jesus has done on the cross, he has brought reconciliation. He has brought these two warring factions together uh, and made them one. He was talking about Jews and Gentiles. But what he's done is he has united us with God and therefore as a result so that we can be united with one another. It's like a a two-way thing. It's, it's, It's no mistake that Paul talks about it being through the cross. It's up and down as well as side to side. The cross says it all. The cross says it all. And so we have in, in this story of the return of the prodigal son, we have a picture of how reconciliation is brought, how this new covenant is born. And it's through the actions of the father in the story. And so he does everything. He, he, he does absolutely everything. So in, in, a, in a situation where if uh, a son had been that rude... Uh, and that disrespectful to his family, he would have been expected to have done the walk of shame. Now, the walk of shame would have been through the village. So the father would have seen him far off, and then uh, maybe, if the father could be bothered. Okay? And then, the, then, then what would happen is that he would have just stayed put. He would have stayed in his house. He would have closed the gates. He would have told nobody to speak to him. And then the, the son would have had to have done the walk of shame through the village. Uh, and, and villages haven't changed. I don't know if they had net curtains in those days. But you, you, you know the situation. Everybody been looking out. It might have been like one of those westerns. Ken, you like a western, don't you? Okay. And there's, there's, there's this sort of a, the person walking into, into, into the, uh, the, the, the town and everybody sort of runs out of the way and is, is in their houses and all looking through the windows. And they, they walk through. They know everybody's watching. Everybody's got an opinion, but nobody is saying anything. Okay. It's just condemnation at every step. So that's what should have happened. That is what Jesus' audience would have expected to have happened. That's what they were waiting for in this next bit of this story. But Jesus says, no. The father shows off his legs. Now, in, in those days, somebody, somebody who was a bit more mature would never, ever, ever show their legs off in public. They would never hitch up their... Uh, the, the skirts of, the, of their, uh, their tunic and run. They would neither run nor show their legs. But the father takes the shame. The father does what everybody is horrified at. So instead of the condemnation being on the son, the condemnation is on the dad now. Everybody's pointing the finger at the dad saying, what on earth is he doing? What's got into him? Okay. And he runs through the village. And everybody's going, what's going on? And then he does what nobody is expecting next to this son who stinks of pigs and who's not ceremonially washed himself or anything else like this. He flings himself into his arms and he kisses him and he welcomes him and he calls him my son, not you so-and-so or whatever he, he was expected to say, but my son, my son. And then he puts the ring on his finger. And the ring basically was saying, you're in control of the money now. The whole estate. You control the lot. He put the tunic on him. And this would be the tunic that the person who had the place 
of highest respect in the feast would wear. This is the person who everybody would be introduced to at, at, at the banquet that was about to happen. They were the guest of honour. And he put sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear sandals. They had bare feet. If you're a son, you had sandals. It was to show that he was totally welcomed back in to the family. And then the father, with his arms around his son, takes him back through the village with everybody still with the curtains, through the uh, door, into the courtyard, up the steps and into the house. The father takes all the shame. The father takes all the shame. And then with the second son, he does the same thing. When the, the banquet is in full, full flow, all these people from the village are going up to the, the, the prodigal son and shaking him by the hands and saying, thank you, very, thank you for this banquet, and sitting down and enjoying it, thinking, what have I just done? What's going on here? I don't believe it, but I'm, I'm enjoying the fatted calf. It's a very nice fatted calf, thank you, sort of thing. The older son refuses to come in. Now, if the son was that, that sort of rude and that sort of... Uh, uh, bad-mannered, then, then the father would do the same treatment. You stay outside, you sit with the servants, you know, I'm having nothing to do with you. But once again, once again, he takes the wall of shame. He walks from the top table past everybody and they're saying, what's he doing? Where's he going? What's going on here? And he goes out and he begs with his son to come in. He doesn't he doesn't sort of blame him. He doesn't condemn him. He just does everything to get the son to come back in. And even when the son is rude and says, you've given me nothing, you know, this son of yours talking about his brother, you know, has ruined his life, sort of uh, spending all your money or all our money on prostitutes. And now you welcome him in, you know, and you've, you've never given me anything, not even a, a goat to have with my friends. And, and he's pouring, pouring on this stuff. And still the father sort of just wants him to come in, wants him to be reconciled with his brother, wants the two to be one. And so this is what, this is the picture that uh, Paul is drawing on about the two becoming one. And this is, he says, this is peace. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus told the story because he was pointing to himself and what he would do on the cross. How he would create this renewed relationship between us and our Heavenly Father so we could be at one with each other. We could be at one with each other. Jesus died on the cross, not just for our sin, not just for our sickness, not just for our disappointments, not just for our failures, not just so the distance between him, uh, the Father and us could be removed, but he came to remove our hostility, to give us a new heart, so we start to live and move in a different way. And... What we have here, uh, as, as we go through, as we go through, is a, a, a glorious picture beginning to emerge. And so uh, at the beginning of the next section, 
Paul sort of gets his, his, his metaphors mixed up. He's going on to talk about the building, but he first talks about us and how we become sons, how we become part of God's household, how we are all uh, sort of in, in this family. And so, in, in a way, he's nicking the, a bit from the story of the prodigal uh, and how the son is restored. But Paul is talking about it, and he talks about this in Ephesians 1. He nicks a metaphor from their own times. Because in Roman times, you could be adopted into a family. You could be given full status, even though you had no sort of previous link. You could be selected and adopted into a family. Now, quite often this happened in the Roman world because a father would look at his own children and think, oh, this lot are a load of rubbish. I need to get in somebody who I can trust, somebody who will carry on the family name, somebody who will look after all my fields and vineyards and everything else. So in my old age, I've still got something to rest on and I'm still going to be okay. So they'd look around for somebody, quite often the son of one of of their slaves who, who they could trust, and they would adopt them into their family. So what would happen is, is that they'd be given full rights as a son of the master. They would inherit everything. Everything would literally become theirs. They would be the new boss. And, but at the same time, any debts, uh, any sort of bad name that may have followed their, 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 sort of, um, their birth family around in the past would be eradicated. So their sort of record would be wiped clean at the same time. And so when, when, it, when in, in, uh, in, the, in the letters Paul talks about adoption and becoming a son, that's what he's talking about, about what happened. And so literally, when it says you're going to be part of God's household, you're going to be in, that is what he was talking about. How we, through Christ, now come into this, this, this wonderful situation where we are all welcomed in, where we all are co-heirs with Christ, where our sinful past is removed and where we can start to be one with him. And so because of that, because of that, and because that has happened to all of us side by side, no matter what our, our background, no matter what's happened in the past, so we are all welcomed in. We are all welcomed in. And Paul then goes on to, to talk about this picture uh, uh, of a building. And he talks about the foundation being the apostles and the prophets. Now, this is an interesting one, because when you read around it, everybody's got a slightly different sort of idea on this. Um, am, am I right? Everybody's got a slightly different idea on this. And, and you can sort of take your pick in a way. But if, if we're going to look at this bit in context, it's all about the gospel. The foundation is the gospel. It's the foundation of what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done for us. And that is the foundation on which the church is built. We are now all one. There's this, um, there's this uh, famous or infamous prayer that uh, Paul would have probably have spoken when he was uh, a young Jewish man. And basically uh, it's called the Siddur. And it says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile, not a slave, and not a woman. But he then writes in Galatians 3.28, we are neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, because we are all one 
in Christ Jesus. Paul actually takes the same order as that prayer that he probably prayed as a kid. And the revelation of what Jesus had done for him. The change that the gospel brought created a new foundation for the way that he lived. And so the foundation for us is the gospel. The foundation is the gospel. That doesn't mean that our our present leaders are, are sort of not in on this. We can also see that it's talking about those in our church who have vision, have that apostolic calling. People who have this prophetic edge, who are keeping us on our toes and making sure we're going in the right direction. We should honour those people. And it's also about him. But I think in the context here, and we, we, you know, when we read the scripture, we need to sort of make sure we get our context right, is to see. It comes back to the gospel again and again. And if we want to be people of peace, we need to be people who are going back to the gospel and letting the gospel speak into our lives and let it refine us and renew us and, and keep us going in the right direction. It's important that we do that. So there's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then it says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone to the building. Now, um, to a modern sort of uh, builder, this might be a, a better way of doing it. You know, in the day when they built arches and all that sort of stuff, cornerstones and headstones and stuff like that were really important. But in, in a modern building, what they tend to do is they create a big sort of framework and then they start to slot all the bits in. And the framework, the the steel frame or the concrete frame, this governs the scale and the shape and uh, of the building. This provides the strength. This is what everything else depends on. And that is what Paul is trying to say here. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the structure that determines what the church is like. And quite often, you know, quite often when you, when you look at uh, different uh, architects and the way they build and the way they do things, people who know a bit about architecture say, oh, yes, that is by that particular architect because that is what the, the frame and the shape of the building is like. You look at the Lloyd's building, you say, ah, oh, Foster uh, in, in London. He, he's, it sort of just shouts him the way that the form of the building is made. And so Jesus is like our structure. He is the one who shapes who we are. He is the one who makes the difference. And so for us, what we need to be, if we're going to have peace, is we need to be depending on him, resting on him. He is the structure, and we we are the components in the structure. You may think of yourself as this wonderful sort of panel or window or nice bit of floor slab or beautiful ceiling with lights coming out or the toilet. I don't know whatever bit of of the building you feel that you are, but we all fit into him. We all fit into him. He governs the way that the whole of the church is. And if we're going to have peace, we need to rest on him. We need to rest on him. We need to lean heavily, deeply, 100% into him. 
that is where we get our peace. And the, and the world will want us to take up different shapes, to, 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 to sort of be set up in different ways. It would say doing things this way is important or doing things that way is important. Following this person's ideas or, or, or building our life around this is most important. But where we get peace is where we lean on him. When we take our shape, our direction, our ways from him. That is what makes the difference. And then it says that all the stones, all the parts, then slot in. But as we do that, as we do that with uh, any wall or any structure, I've got uh, another picture. Yes, here we go. Even though there is this framework, even though there's something which is carrying the load, even though there's something which is in there governing the shape and everything of the building, the stones still rest on one another. And that is why we're being built into a church. Because we are there to depend on one another. We're there to rest on one another. We're there to support each other. And that is when everything is as it should be, when the church starts to function right, and when we lean on one another, when we have time to listen to one another, where we feel that we have the freedom to talk openly with each other, when we know that there are people looking out for us and, uh, and wanting to help, wanting to pray with us, wanting to be with us. So we have the gospel we need to, if we want peace, we need to go back to the gospel. We need to be people who let the gospel sort of shape our thinking and get our priorities right. We need to be people who fit into Jesus, not the other way around. We need to be people who are ready to sort of uh, help one another and carry each other and support one another. And the church is also a place where God lives by his spirit. Now, when I was trying to find a picture for this, I was looking at lots of interiors, and I thought, they all look a bit sort of, you know, perfect. And um, I thought, that's not what I'm trying to get across here. Because, you know, whatever house uh, you go into, uh, it's never perfect. So we were waiting four months to get a radiator fitted in our house. So, um, you, know, you know, getting hold of a plumber can sometimes be interesting. And so there's this guy who's done some work, and, uh, you know, he's not a Christian, so we like it when he comes in, and, and we can witness to him and stuff like that. So it's fun when he comes in to do some work for us. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I'm coming. I'm, I can come. I can do this, you know. But he's, he kept putting us off. So eventually we pinned him down to coming. And so the radiators arrived on the Friday. The plumber arrives on the Saturday. We open the radiator's up, and there's this huge scratch down one of the radiators. We thought, we waited four months for this. We can't send it back and wait another four months for the plumber to come back again. So we thought, right, let's just put it in. Let's just put it in. It's not perfect. But we were going to scratch it eventually. You know, we can touch it up with a bit of paint. You know, people aren't going to notice. They're not going to say... Oh, scratch right, Ada, you know, not staying for dinner. You know, that's not going to happen, is it? And, you see, it, 
I, I don't know what your house is like. Is it a crazy house? You know, where everything is everywhere. You know, when we had younger kids, there was never a neat and tidy day, ever. You know, you, it was always a sort of, you know, it's like painting the fourth road bridge. You know, you've started at one end and you got to the other, you think, oh, I've got the place neat and tidy, and then you've got to start the other end all over again. And, 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 and sometimes, you know, that, that is what church is like, isn't it? It's not perfect. There are, there are scratches. There are, there's, there's, there's this, there's that, and the other. And that, that, that's life. But there has to be a place where the Spirit dwells. It has to be a place where the Spirit dwells. We had a load of family over yesterday, and the, 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 the house was sort of in that sort of mayhem state, you know. There was Carmen, our little granddaughter, running around sort of doing stuff. Uh, we had our, our ne- some of our now grown up nephews and, and nephew and niece in making lots of noise. There's cricket in the back garden. There was sort of chatter in the in the front room in the shade. There's lots and lots going on. But the whole time, the slow cooker was cooking the chili, and the aroma of the chili every time you walk past it. Mm. And that's. That's what came to my mind as I, I read this again this morning. The spirit, you know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't, see, couldn't see the smell, but you could, you could smell it. And it just sort of, it just made you think, hmm, it's going to be a good end to the day today. It may be chaos. It may be going crazy, but it's going to be a good end to the day here. And the church has to be a place where the spirit dwells. We're wasting our time unless the spirit is alive and at work. We, we, we had an interesting meeting last week, a great meeting last week, where we were encouraged in a very dynamic way to be people who moved in the spirit and let the spirit be at work in our lives. But if we are going to function properly as a church, it, it, it's, it's got to be happening. It's got to be happening. The aroma of the spirit has got to fill this place. The aroma of the spirit has got to sort of be over all of our relationships. He is the one who's got to guide us and help us. He is the one who brings peace, the spirit of peace. And we've got to let him be at work. We've got to welcome him into every conversation, into every action, into every plan that we make. So that's my reflection on peace. And we've got this wonderful picture of a temple being built. This idea that uh, when the final brick had been put in place and Solomon started to worship in the temple, so it became complete. So it became a place of peace. And God is making us into a people of peace. So a few questions to finish off. When you think about the gospel, when you think about what Jesus has done for you, is it affecting the way that you live? Is it affecting who you are? As you read his parables, as you look at the way that he interacted with people, as you consider the cross, is God speaking to you and saying, actually, what about this? Let him challenge you. Peace, I wasn't expecting it to be a sort of challenging sort of sermon, but let, let him challenge you on how 
you're somebody who sort of lets the gospel be the foundation to your life and not other things. And then there's, uh, you know, are, are, you, are you fitting into his structure or are you trying to impose something on Jesus? So often we try and impose our plans and ideas on him. So, all oh, right, yes, this is what I want you to do. Where he says, actually, I want you to rest in me. And are you ready to let others be the people who you can rest on? I'm an independent person. I'm the sort of person who tries to work out myself and do it all myself and everything else. Are we trusting the other people around us? Are we trusting one another? Or are we just trying to sort of push on, I can do it? We need, we need to learn to lean on each other and find there are people around us who love us and care for us. And are we welcoming the Spirit? Are we welcoming the Spirit? Holy Spirit, we want more and more and more of you. We're lost without you. We're nothing without you. You are the presence of our Saviour, empowering us, equipping us, helping us at every turn. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. More and more of you today, we pray. So Lord God, we can be more like you. We can be more like you. We can be humble and gentle in heart, ready to receive as well as ready to give. Lord Jesus, you let your, your feet be washed with tears and anointed with a rich perfume. You let yourself be served. Lord God, we pray that we would let ourselves be served by one another. Lord Jesus, you did nothing unless it fitted in with what the Father was saying and commanding. Lord God, we pray that we would surrender to you again today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have saved us. Help us never to forget what saved us and may we build our lives on that rock. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.